In 2009, 21-year-old Alyssa McLemore told her grandmother she would be home soon. Her family never heard from her again. A startling 911 call, a few tips, and 11 years have done nothing to bring Alyssa home. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to our second installment of the Third Thursday series. Every third Thursday during 2020, I will be profiling another missing or murdered Indigenous persons case. I'm working with a researcher named Annie on this project, and you can hear more about it in the Out With Old, In With The New episode posted at the end of 2019. I want to, of course, thank Annie for her work and her guidance on this episode. I also want to thank Alyssa's aunt, Tina Russell, for speaking with Annie for this episode. Annie and I both understand the emotional labor spent in being an advocate and reliving trauma like this, and we appreciate her trusting us with Alyssa's story. We did use existing reporting wherever possible as to not put too much of a burden on Tina. Tonight, we're going to talk about the disappearance of 21-year-old Alyssa McLemore from Kent, Washington. Alyssa was Aleut and African-American descent. Now, the Aleuts are from the Aleutian Islands, which stretch across the northern Pacific Ocean, so they lay between Russia and the U.S. As often happens, Aleut, also pronounced Aleut, was the name given by the Russians. And while the Aleut people identify under this name or use Alaskan Native, their name for themselves is Unanga. So a brief bit of U.S. history I came across while researching the history of the indigenous people of the Aleutian Islands. In 1942, Japan invaded two Aleutian Islands. In the case of the island of Atu, the Japanese took the islanders as prisoners and moved them to Japan. The U.S. was, obviously, concerned about the attack on what was, at the time, a U.S. territory, and the possibility that Japan would do the same on the other islands until they reached the mainland of North America. So the U.S. evacuated the occupants of the islands under the name of safety. But did they move them into communities or give them the option of where to go? No, they did not. The Unanga people were forced from their homes and only allowed to bring one suitcase of possessions. They had to leave everything else behind. They were put into boats and were not told where they were going. Then their villages, with all the things they left behind, were burned to the ground in order to make them unusable to support any Japanese troops that invaded. Everything from people's homes to the churches were destroyed. The people were interned in southeast Alaska in makeshift housing. They used old canneries, they used an old gold mining camp to hold the 881 evacuees, aka prisoners. There was little water, there was no plumbing, no toilets, there was no electricity, and there was inadequate amounts of food. Some of the male community members were forced into harvesting fur seals for no pay. Forced work for no pay is the definition of slavery. An estimated 10% of the detained Aleuts died during their internment. 
largely due to diseases being spread in the very cramped conditions. The last camp closed in 1945 at the end of the war, which was three years after they were evacuated to these internment camps. But here's the thing. Japan withdrew their troops from the Aleutian Islands a full two years earlier in 1943. The eminent risk that supposedly justified this internment was gone for two years before the people were released. When they did return, they found their villages completely gone and very little help from the U.S. government to rebuild. Restitution was not given until 1988, over 40 years later. So why am I telling you this in an episode about a missing person? Because for starters, you should know about this. In the U.S., we spend a significant amount of time teaching World War II creating books, plays, and documentaries about the war. But I'd still be shocked if more than a handful of you listening right now have heard of this. And the second reason I'm explaining this is because this was a traumatic event experienced collectively by Alyssa's direct ancestors, just two generations before her. This trauma informed how Alyssa's grandmother was raised, how her mother was raised, and it passed down to her. Even though Alyssa did not have tribal connections to her ancestral family, as she was born and grew up outside of Seattle, her family still carried the trauma. We don't know how or exactly why Alyssa's family ended up outside of Seattle, Washington. By the time we get down to her mother and aunt's generation, They just know that they have lost that connection, not necessarily why. Alaska Native tribes are not the only ones who have dealt with their younger generations moving away. The urbanization of all Native American people grew in the 50s and the 60s. The Bureau of Indian Affairs had a federal program that they ended in the 1970s that aided the relocation of Native Americans to cities. It was yet another policy aimed at assimilating Native Americans to quote-unquote mainstream culture and terminating their ties to their tribal and traditional ways. In that way, unfortunately, this plan was initially successful. It created a group known as Urban Indians who faced the same racial discrimination but without the cultural support and resources of those who lived with or near their communities. Rates of homelessness, accidental deaths, poverty, infant mortality, and unemployment are higher for Indigenous people living in cities than the general population. This isn't a case of urban Indians not acclimating to city living. That contention is rife with racism in itself. What actually happened during this relocation program is that the indigenous people were sold a bill of goods about the ideals of city living. They were told they would have more access to resources, not less. And that absolutely ended up not being true. Discrimination made it hard to find adequate housing and employment and equal opportunities, and now they were away from their social support. More Native Americans live in cities now than ever before. The 2010 census tells us that 71% of Native Americans now live in urban areas. 
but there is a change in the attitude towards traditions. Rather than assimilating to survive, the urban Indian communities are growing together to support each other, preserve their traditions and culture, and work towards ending discrimination. And this community would become really important and influential to Alyssa McLemore's family after her disappearance. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the buildup to when Alyssa went missing. When Alyssa was born in July 1987, her mother was very young. She was only 14. Shortly after Alyssa was born, Gracie's older sister, Tina, also had a baby girl. The family lived in a traditional indigenous household with the various generations taking care of each other. Alyssa and her cousins grew up as close as siblings. Alyssa's grandmother, Barbara, and her aunt Tina both consider Alyssa to be their daughter, a daughter they raised. And this is because they both did. This is not that mindset that a child has parents who make all the decisions and do all of the caretaking. It was everyone taking care of everyone. And Alyssa did not lack for people who loved her and were looking out for her. Even still, the family dealt with issues within their extended family. There were issues with substance abuse, lack of education, and domestic violence. And those would absolutely have impacted Alyssa. But through all of that, Alyssa grew up to be a bubbly and fun-loving personality. That old Dateline trope that we kind of joke about, that whole she lit up a room thing, that was the case here. I have pictures of Alyssa that I'll put out on social media, and you can see it just through these snapshots of her. Her personality comes right on through. When Alyssa was in her sophomore year, which here in the U.S. is grade 10, so we're talking about 16 years old, she dropped out of school. According to the National Center for Educational Studies, Native American and Alaskan Native youth have the highest dropout rate out of all racial and ethnic groups, and that holds whether we are talking about a school on a reservation or a school in the city. Alyssa's mother, Gracie, had also dropped out of school. She did later earn her GED, and she started taking classes at the local community college before she was diagnosed with scleroderma. This disease affects the skin in all cases, but what Gracie had is, I assume, systemic scleroderma, which includes organ systems. It has the highest risk of fatality of any of the connective tissue diseases. So Gracie had to drop out of college, and she was home being cared for by her mother, her daughter Alyssa, and her sister. When Alyssa was an older teen, around 18 or 19, she gave birth to a baby girl. She was devoted to her baby, though she was not always the full-time parent. Her daughter's father was in the picture 100%. Her grandmother, her aunt, they were all involved in taking care of Alyssa's daughter. Within a lot of indigenous communities and traditions, it is not uncommon for a child to be raised by multiple family members. I don't necessarily want to make this sound like the parents just dip out and leave the kid with the ants, because that is not what I'm saying, but there isn't the same judgment for a parent of any gender to not be the primary caretaker of their child 24-7. I can't help but think about how much better society as a whole would be 
If we all adopted this viewpoint, I can think of so many friends who struggled really hard and possibly unnecessarily hard because of this idea that they are the mother and therefore they need to be the 24-7 caretaker. Alyssa was able to choose what was best for her daughter and what was best for herself because she didn't have this same hang-up. Now, there are a few discrepancies about Alyssa's living situation in the reporting. She did live at home with her mother, her grandmother, her daughter, and there is an interview with a relative who said that her daughter's father also lived at the house. But most other sources say he did not live at the home and their daughter primarily lived with him, but that she would visit her daughter liberally but wasn't living there full-time with her. The couple did seem to be together off and on during this time, but regardless of their status, they were both active parents. In early 2009, Alyssa was 21 years old and her daughter was three. Gracie, Alyssa's mother, was very sick now. In line with the family traditions, Alyssa pitched in to help care for her mother. Gracie was only 35, but she needed round-the-clock care. This made it difficult for Alyssa to work a traditional job, so she was not working at the time. In early April 2009, Gracie's doctor had her hospitalized as her disease had progressed. Then on Thursday, April 9th, Gracie's mother Barbara was given the absolutely heartbreaking news that this was it, this was the end. Gracie was just not going to be able to hold on much longer. It was time to call everybody to say goodbye. So around 6.30 that evening, Barbara called Alyssa on her cell phone and told her she needed to come home right away. They would then go together to the hospital, support each other as they said goodbye. Alyssa told Barbara that she would be home soon. She was several miles away from home, and public transportation was her best option at getting home. But after about an hour, Alyssa still hadn't shown up. The family was worried because it wasn't like Alyssa not to show up, but they also knew she was probably struggling with the gravity of what was happening. I'm sure those of you listening who have lost someone after a prolonged illness, you know the end is coming, so in theory, you've prepared yourself. But when it actually comes, it still feels like a shock. The idea of going to the hospital to say goodbye, they thought it might have been overwhelming Alyssa and she was kind of dragging her feet. They did try to call her and did not get an answer. Now, just a quick note on the sequence of events from here on out. The timeline is a little foggy which is understandable. It's not like Alyssa didn't show up on April 9th and they started taking notes about what happened when in case a podcaster wanted to talk about it 11 years later. Obviously, they didn't do that. They thought Alyssa would show back up. And when they did start realizing that something bad may have happened, the family had an expectation that they would alert the authorities and then the police would spring into action and figure out what was going on. No one I have ever talked to looks back at the early days of their loved one's case and goes, I thought it was going to grow cold. No one thinks that. 
So everything after this point is to the best of Tina's recollection, what we could get from the newspaper archives. And the police did not respond to the request to speak with them, but they have spoken to the media in the past. So we've used those reports as well. The next little bit has been reported a number of ways. So either on April 9th or April 10th, the family got a knock at the door. It was two Kent police officers. They said they received a 911 call from Melissa's cell phone around 9.15 that night. They could not trace where the call was made from, so they went to the address connected to the phone to check on things. The family was alarmed. They told these officers that Alyssa was supposed to come home. She hadn't shown up. And they wanted to report Alyssa missing now. But the police told them that they actually had to wait. They were told that she's an adult. She can stay away if she wants. Even though we have this 911 call from her phone. It's entirely unclear what, if anything, the Kent police did next to try to find Alyssa or if they dropped this after not finding her at home. Then, on Sunday, April 12th, Gracie died. No one was able to reach Alyssa to tell her, and they knew she wouldn't have stayed out of touch like this, knowing her mother was in her last days, let alone staying out of touch with her daughter in a time like this. Within a day or two of Gracie passing away, the family officially reported Alyssa missing, after having waited like they were told to do, and the investigation began. When the 911 call was pulled to be listened to as part of the investigation, it was of a woman screaming for help, and then the call cuts off after 10 seconds. Because there was no GPS on the phone, they had to rely on cell towers to determine where the caller was She was in the Kent, Washington area when the call was placed, but this gives still a two-mile radius from the towers. So that is all we know about the 911 call. It has not been released. The family has not been allowed to listen to it. After 11 years, I don't see what is worth protecting by holding the call back. You never know what other people may be able to hear from it that could help the investigation, but. The way it's been phrased is that they're just not allowed to release it until it's resolved, which, I don't know, maybe that is their policy. I know that is not a universal rule of police. I have heard 911 calls from cases that are unsolved from around the country. So another thing they learned from the phone, though, is that the phone was on for three days after the 911 call. And then on Monday, April 13th, the phone shut off for good. Alyssa's family does not believe at this point that the police were taking her disappearance seriously. And they think that is because Alyssa had a past arrest for prostitution. I'm not saying this was necessarily the case with the Kent police, but we do know from other cases that some police officers here that the person was or is a sex worker and assume that they're estranged from their families, that they're just off the grid, that they have substance abuse issues and are out on a bender and will show up later, or they determine that sex work means the suspect pool is going to be very wide and they're not quite sure where to start. And we know this because serial killers target sex workers and we very sadly have a large 
number of cases that we can look at to evaluate the police response and also what led to the delays in that response. So here's one example. From 1996 to 1998, at least eight sex workers in Poughkeepsie, New York, went missing. Their bodies were found in the home of Kendall Francois. Patricia Barone, the mother of one of the victims, said, if one Vassar college girl was missing, we would have had the cops all over the place. We're talking about eight missing women in two-year span in a town of, what, 30,000 people? And it wasn't until Francois's ninth victim broke free and led police to his house that the remains of the women were found. Gary Ridgway, he said he purposely targeted sex workers because he knew he could get away with it. Now, the Kent police did deny that this was an issue here. They said that they did take Alyssa's disappearance seriously from the start, and the current investigators have praised the efforts of the past investigators. If that's the case, we have to wonder why did the family get the perception that the police weren't really working the case? My guess is the first thing is a lack of communication. The family didn't know what was or was not happening in the case. If the investigators are not showing the family that they're actively engaged in this investigation, it's no wonder the family has the impression that nothing is happening. I know with open investigations, of course, there's only so much they can say, but you would expect enough communication with the family regularly enough that they would be aware that the case was being thoroughly investigated. This type of lack of communication leaves families feeling incredibly powerless in the situation. And I think that powerlessness of the entire situation really sank in for the family on the day of Gracie's funeral when Alyssa did not walk through the door. They are so emotionally spent at this point. They cared for Gracie until her death. They don't know where Alyssa is. And the last thing they could really hold to, that Alyssa would not miss her mother's funeral if she could help it, that last bit of hope was gone. So wherever Alyssa was, she wasn't there of her own free will. The police reached out to the media And on April 17th, 2009, the Seattle Times did publish an article on the case. There were a few more articles in other papers for the next couple of months. And some local people do remember seeing a news broadcast or two about the disappearance. But there wasn't widespread coverage by any means, and it faded away very quickly. Over the course of the investigation, the police conducted somewhere around 20 formal interviews. They asked the family about Alyssa's friends, boyfriends, involvement with drugs, that sort of thing. Tina remembers that they took Alyssa's boots in order to get DNA from them, but two years later, the police took familial DNA to submit to the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, aka NamUs. It's not clear where the disconnect was over getting this DNA submitted, because submitting it within 30 days is actually the state law, yet it took them two years. Alyssa was also listed as Asian or Pacific Islander for the first seven years she was missing. And this is a common issue that Alaskan Natives experience 
when being classified by other people by race or ethnicity. They are often classified as Asian due to their appearance. So you might think this is somewhat minor. If Alyssa looks like what most people would consider Asian, listing her as Asian might be helpful. The goal is to find her. But what this does do by misreporting her race is that it skews the numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women across the U.S. Because this isn't the only time this has happened. We honestly do not know how many missing and murdered Indigenous women there are in the U.S., partly due to issues with classifications like this. It has been found in some cases that the family would tell the police that the person was white, trying to get the case to be a higher priority. I absolutely do not blame families for caring more about their missing relatives than about our statistics. Absolutely do not blame them. I'm only mentioning it because it's been yet another barrier in fully understanding the scope of this issue. With all the work on Alyssa's case, there have only been two solid tips that have been made public, and they may actually be linked. At some point between when Alyssa last talked to her grandmother and the 911 call, witnesses saw Alyssa in the area of 30th Avenue South and Kent Des Moines Road in Kent, Washington. From all accounts, this is a rough area of town known by the locals for being where drug use happens, where prostitution happens, where there are some seedy motels. So these witnesses who we do not know necessarily that they knew Alyssa, but it almost sounds like they did, they said that a pickup truck pulled up to where Alyssa was standing and the truck was described as a green 1990s model, possibly with Oregon plates. And this fits another tip, not necessarily at the time of her disappearance, but another person had seen Alyssa before that with someone who drove a green pickup truck. He was a white man in his 50s or 60s. He was about 5 foot 8. He weighed 175 to 185 pounds. The witness also said the man was known to Alyssa, though the information that is out there is not any more specific than that. So was this man that had been seen before the same one who pulled up to Alyssa right around the time she was last seen? It kind of makes sense that he likely was. He was probably someone known to Alyssa because we know Alyssa was planning to come home to go see her mother. So you have to wonder if she took this ride with someone she knew, someone she trusted, and it was the wrong person to get in the car with. From everything we can find, the police never identified this man, which obviously means they've never been able to speak with him. Over the years, Alyssa's family would hold vigils privately, and whenever news would hit that a body was found, Tina would call the medical examiners to find out if it was Alyssa. The family conducted their own searches, and they handed out flyers, and then, with the rise of social media, Tina became active there, getting Alyssa's story out. In 2018, there was a huge boost in awareness of this case when Tina and other family members were invited to participate in Seattle's March for Women to represent missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. This was the first time Tina stood in front of a group to tell Alyssa's story, and how she has grown as an advocate in the last two years is remarkable. A year later, in January 2019, 
she flew to Washington, D.C. to march in the National Women's March there. So where women's rights and indigenous rights intersect is where Tina Russell stands. And the hope is that it's not just the urban Indian population coming together to advocate for themselves, but that the state of Washington starts paying attention to these issues. In 2018, the Washington State Patrol was tasked by the Washington House through legislation to determine a few things related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. First was the scope of the issue. Second was to identify the barriers to dealing with the issue. And the third was to create partnerships to increase reporting and investigations. They were told to do this with the consultation and collaboration of law enforcement, both local and tribal. They were supposed to engage with urban Indian organizations and with federally recognized tribes. When they published their report, it was lackluster. So let's start with the front cover. It shows an amazing piece of art with absolutely no attribution to the artist. When I googled missing and murdered indigenous women and girls art to try to find the painting, it was literally the first Google result. It is by Canadian artist Jonathan Labeloy, and the piece is called Still Dancing. It includes the images of missing indigenous Canadians, and from what I can tell, it was used without the artist's permission in the Washington State Report. The artist sells prints of this piece, so I can't imagine he would have been okay with someone reproducing it with no attribution. So they used the work of an Indigenous artist without giving him credit, and that seems like a very poor way to start off this report about how to build partnerships with tribes. The report itself was okay to the passing eye, but as I read it, I mean, it did seem to lack some substance, even comparing it just with the RCMP's report about the Highway of Tears. That's my previous experience benchmark with which I'm reading this, and this seemed a little watered down compared to that. But then I read the Urban Indian Health Institute's response report called We Demand More, and they responded to the Washington State Patrol report, which reinforced my view of that report, but then kicked it up 100 notches. Here is a quote from UIHI's report. This is referring to the State Patrol report. Quote, The report is an imprecise recounting of the 10 meetings held with tribal nations and community members across the state, with no meaningful or scientifically based analysis of the knowledge shared in those meetings. Unquote. Washington State had a chance to set the standard for law enforcement in the U.S. on this issue, and they just didn't. I think the House needs to tell them to go back and do it again and do it right. Or it needs to tell them to sit down and accept the hard work the UIHI has already done for them. A huge issue I have is that the information the State Patrol was tasked with gathering is widely available through a Google search. The same Google where they may or may not have found the artwork for their cover. There is published research on Indigenous issues and law enforcement. Yes, there needs to be more. There is no doubt. But they didn't do more. They didn't add to the conversation. They could have written a better report using existing studies found on the internet. 
What they can't find on the internet, though, are the relationships and the trust that they need to build, and that's not going to happen in a couple of meetings. This is going to happen with years of sustained effort where these families and these communities are seeing a change, not hearing about a change, not being promised a change, but actually seeing it. In April 2019, on the 10-year anniversary of Alyssa's disappearance, the family held a public vigil. Of course, Tina and Barbara were there, but so were Alyssa's father and dozens of family members. Tina spoke and said she had looked into billboards, but they would have cost thousands of dollars a month. So she was happy to announce that she instead managed to connect with a different program for something even better. Alyssa was going to be part of the Homeward Bound program. This program began in 2005 as a partnership between the State Patrol and a trucking company. The trucks would have huge posters of missing children displayed on the side. It's a mobile billboard. It would reach well beyond just the immediate area. And this was space the trucks aren't using. This is just open space, so it doesn't really cost much to have the posters up there. So working with Camway Transportation, they decided to include Alyssa on a truck, even though she wasn't a missing child. They looked at her story. We have a young woman who had been missing for 10 years at that point, and the leads had long dried up. Her case needed the exposure. So now there is a moving billboard letting people know that Alyssa is missing. I just saw a picture on social media the other day of someone spotting that truck. Media exposure on this case is on the rise overall. That is thanks to the hard work of Alyssa's family, of Tina, of Barbara, and the scores of Indigenous people who have advocated for so long for the missing and murdered. And everyone is now starting to pay attention. And the credit is to them for being loud enough that we started paying attention. Alyssa Angelique McLemore would be 32 years old now. She is classified as an endangered missing person. At the time she went missing, Alyssa was about 5'2 and 130 pounds. She has black hair that she sometimes bleached blonde, and she has brown eyes. She also has a scar on her abdomen. If you have any information about Alyssa's disappearance, please call the Kent Police Department at 253 253- 856-5800. This number will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie in KC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 